back to another exciting episode of Open Swim with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, and Allie Healy. So I'm going to ask a question to kind of prompt the discussion that's coming up after this. What is the best thing you've been watching as of late? Oh, I got one. I might get judged for this one, but, and I already have from on a personal level, but I have Disney Plus and there's so many treasure troves of nostalgia and like throwbacks that it's so hard to pick from. It's so overwhelming, especially as a 90s kid. I started watching Lilo and Stitch, the series, wow. which came on. I was like maybe five or six and I love it. I'm almost done with it. I've been binging it very hardcore. Well, in addition to Stranger Things, I would have to say the abstract, the art of design. I watched the first season when it came out, but the second season I just started watching recently. So I'm really excited that one's back out again. Honestly, I've been a little bit in a different path, if you will. I haven't been watching a lot of the series everybody seems to be buzzing about. Perhaps it's just indicative of the time of the year, but I've been binging on cooking shows and cooking competitions Mm. and getting ideas for the upcoming weeks ahead as we prepare holiday fair. That's a great choice. What's that series that's on Netflix that everyone's watching right now about cooking? What's that called? The Great British Bake Off? No, there's also, I think it's like salt, fat, oil or something like that. Mm. Is that the way I you're talking about? No, the great, yeah, that's the Great British, British Baking, Baking Show. Show. I haven't started that one yet. I haven't either, but there are members of our family that are highly into it. Yeah. It's beloved. It is it's beloved. good. I like it. Is it? Yeah. What's your favorite one that you watch? In the seasonality, there's a lot of competitions, like so around Halloween and now Thanksgiving, where they're given you know the, these in, in basically insane challenges, and they have say two hours to do it, uh, or even like a show like Chopped. What I really like is kind of goes down to the idea of I only have this in my pantry. What do I make? These people prove that you really have a lot more food in your house than you think you do. So I Organic MacGyvers. Organic, <laughs> exactly. Culinary MacGyvers. And um, yeah, I love seeing like what they do with really strange uh, foods that normally you would not even want to give a second glance at. So I, I think I like, you know, being a designer, I think I'm intrigued by the quote unquote design process that you watch them go through when they're faced with these um what seemingly impossible ingredients and they end up creating not only delicious but beautiful looking fair and uh, presentations mm-hmm. what about you Hallie well I have a completely different show that I've been watching and it's actually my my treadmill show at the moment uh, when I when I have a show that I know that my my husband will probably not want to watch with me in the evenings That's me. I take it to the treadmill in the mornings when I work out so there's a show that Netflix just started streaming, but it's an older show. It's an Israeli show called Shtisel, and I think it's fascinating. Um, I like shows that kind of like delve into a culture that I know very little about, and this is all about ultra-Orthodox in Jerusalem, and um, it's fascinating. The best thing I could compare it to, it's kind of like The Sopranos, like very insular community, very nuanced, great character development. You know, I thought it was this like quirky thing that like I was the only one watching, and then I found out it's one of the top streamed shows on Netflix right now. And I think between what all of us have talked about watching, those are like four very different categories of content that are being streamed on Netflix and are a really nice lead in to the discussion we're going to have today around streaming services. And essentially, who's going to win this battle and what do consumers really want to see? How do they want to see it? 
And what's the future of TV content consumption? We're talking about this in the wake of the launch of Disney Plus, which is what's gotten us buzzing around the office. But it's not news. You know, streaming services have been around for several years and they've gone through different iterations. We're moving into what I would consider streaming 2.0, which is not all syndicated shows or movies, but a lot more original content, which definitely adds a different dimension to what's happening within streaming services. There are a lot of other nuances to each platform and what makes them attractive to consumers. So we wanted to have some conversation about where things stand today and in the long run, take our bets as to who's going to win the content wars. Before we get into the discussion, I just want to level set on what people typically think about when they're trying to decide on which streaming service or services they'd like to bring into their homes. The first thing is obviously price as well as any sort of deal. So like, for example, if you have an American Express Blue Cash Preferred card, you can get 6% cash back on Prime Video, HBO Now, Hulu, Netflix, and more. And of course, Apple Credit Card offers 3% cash back on Apple TV. Depending on what streaming service you're interested in, and if you have one of those credit cards, you know, you may be motivated by price. The other thing you might be thinking about is access. So number of users in your household, number of devices in your household that may need to be accessing the content at the same time. The other thing to consider is what kind of device are you going to be streaming this on? So like is the streaming service available on certain devices like Mm. a lot of times uh, for example disney plus isn't available right now on amazon fire sticks but like there's chromecast apple tv things like that absolutely and then the final point is really all around content so what do you want to watch how often do you want to watch is it bundled you know with other platforms so like for example if you're a big time hbo watcher and there are certain shows you always watch on hbo it's going to be more beneficial for you just to subscribe to hbo go rather than buying these shows individually on a platform like apple or amazon Another consideration is interface and usability. So, you know, depending on what you're looking to do in the platform or just ease of use or your sophistication with technology, it may inform which platform you're most interested in using. I know that's been a big gripe with Disney Plus for launch. They're already talking about introducing new features to allow you to see what you've already watched at what percentage so that you have a better understanding of your consumption habits and you can see a a past viewed queue. Lots of things to consider, but with that, let's get into the conversation. I'd love to do a little round table on how you guys are consuming content, where you like to consume your content, and why you like to use those channels. So Allie, let's start with you. Well, I will say I probably do a lot. I do consume a lot of content basically exclusively through streaming services. Um, there are a few there are a few shows I still watch like on actual TV, like live. But even then, I prefer to like either have them recorded or watch them the day after on on demand or something. So like I can fast forward through commercials or there's a limited number um, and then I don't have to like sit. And I know it's it's very like now you don't want to sit at eight o'clock and like, oh, my show's on. Like, I just want to watch it whenever I want to. Um, so that's a little mo- millennial of me, I guess. But I'm very much a streaming person. So, Eric, can you talk a little bit more about YouTube TV? Because I know you're a super big fan of YouTube TV. Listen, I think for someone who's like cutting the, the cord, it's like an easy way to jump into digital streaming. 
So, you know, you get all the stations that you might have on cable, but then what's nice is you get features like TiVo from back in the day, right? You can record the shows on demand and have them when you want. I know all the platforms offer that, but I just think it's such a simplistic format and set up the way they have it and that you just add those shows to your queue. I think it's very seamless. So for someone who likes traditional TV, you get it there. It's just ease of use. It's a platform that anyone can pick up and and navigate with no problem at all. For original content, I think I find myself using Netflix more than anything. When we buy movies, definitely go to Apple. Yeah, we don't really use Hulu. We're not HBO. We just grab it when we need it for Game of Thrones. Well, speak for yourself because the way (laughs) in which I'm consuming content without you is very different. (laughs) So here's here's my spiel. I um, I'm I'm a content junkie. Um, not only do I like to, I actually I'm I'm sort of the flip of Allie in the sense that I don't mind appointment television. I think a perfect example of this is yes, I'm going to say it again. When Showtime did the reboot of Twin Peaks, I actually liked the fact that they weren't re- releasing everything at once. I liked the fact that it was appointment driven. You had to wait every week. Game of Thrones is obviously that way. Um, a number of Handmaid's Tales, another good example. There are a lot of shows out right now that have that buzz and that social factor around them. And I think you can't get that in the same way without having appointment-driven television. Yeah, I mean, you can argue that with Stranger Things, for example, that came out and people were talking about it. And it was a social phenomenon. But depending on where you were in your streaming of the series... Um, dictated how you could get in on that conversation. Whereas if everybody's having a shared viewing experience, it's a completely different thing. So I sort of like that. I also like the fact that if you have appointment driven television, and this is where I geek out as a film major, but I like the fact that it gives the opportunity for residual content. So for example, with Twin Peaks, when that came out, I wasn't just watching the show. I was also reading the book that came out after the show. And I was also listening to a couple of different Twin Peaks based podcasts weekly about, you know, watching the show, dissecting the show. And I think that shows like that are really different because there's a lot to talk about, but it allowed you to live the content throughout the week in a different way in between episodes and really get into it. So for me, that's a really rewarding way to view the shows um, that I like to watch. Um, I do agree that, and I, well, I will say that, you know, one reason I don't like YouTube TV is because I don't think that the quality of content is there. And if it is there, it's largely due to what they're syndicating. Um, I'm, there aren't too many shows on network television, narrative driven shows that I'm interested in watching at the moment. Um, so I find myself, um, watching more shows on places like Netflix, purchasing them on Apple if I really want to see something that's um, that's on a channel that I don't own, or streaming something on HBO, again, while I'm on the treadmill. Well, yeah, so YouTube TV is really more of a competitor to like a Sling TV For or sure. something like that. My sister said something about, I forget which streaming service it was, maybe Netflix, had an, an original show that was coming out, but I think they were releasing it like one episode at a time. So I think it's interesting that even streaming services are feeling like people are are wanting this appointment TV thing and like feeling maybe like binged out. Yeah, and I think a perfect example of that, I was going to mention this, is The Mandalorian. Yes. So Disney Plus, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there just because of the breadth and depth of their licensing practice but you know because of their ownership of the star wars universe it gives them the ability to do different things with that storytelling that narrative and now they're releasing this series the mandalorian and they're actually doing it episodically that's the one that my sister was talking about yeah and so i think that's really interesting you know and to me what's interesting about that is this idea that and this is one reason why you know in my prediction 
I think that Disney Plus is going to win because I think what they're doing differently is that they are not playing into what users think they want. They're giving them something that they don't even know they want, which is giving them the content that they want in a way that allows it to be social, all while bucking the trend of instant gratification. And I think, you know, again, you know, everyone thinks that they want something now, they want to binge, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I find at least for myself, when I'm binging on a series, let's say they release another season, I go back and I'm like, what happened to that character? I can't remember. Now I got to go back and rewatch. Like, it's a lot. It's a commitment. It's a commitment. And I don't feel like the content is sticking with me in the same way. And so I think that there's something definitely interesting how platforms approach the dissemination of content and what in the long run people really want. This connects to a former episode of Open Swim when we talked about the golden age of television. And we talked a lot about appointment television viewing and the loss of the cultural community that the appointment television afforded Um, you know coming to work or to school the next day and talking about the episode that you saw when that was the one moment you could see the episode whereas now everybody is on their own path Um, I feel like the conversations have switched and reversed from did you view last night to have you yet watched or, oh, I need to watch that. So there's definitely is that loss of conversation, you know, on a, on a common plane that's been lost by the fact that you're able to watch different shows on different platforms in different ways at different times than everybody else is. So, and I do believe a lot of the streaming services are going back to this episodic distribution. I do think the main reason is it's also a retention technique Mm -hmm. because a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll sign up for a a trial, binge the show they want to watch, and then drop the trial. So from a business standpoint, I think they're beginning to realize they need to do something to create that uh, continuing business. I'm very much in line with, Hallie, what you were saying, and I read a great article by Kelly Lawler from USA Today And it was titled Too Much, Why the Streaming Wars Between Apple, Disney, HBO, and More are Ruining TV. And she speaks to that idea of the fact that that community is lost. Um, You know, the good thing about streaming um, television and and the shows, I mean, I don't think there's any question, as we talked about in our former podcast, that it is truly a golden age of television. The content is greater than it's ever been. And also the prestige of TV is more than it's ever been. You're seeing major movie stars signing on to these different contracts with these different services to develop programming and uh, documentaries and specials and whatnot that at before when you know when you would see a, a movie star move to TV it usually was a sign of oh their career is over where now there is certainly that swagger and <laughs> that TV didn't have before what Kelly was saying in her article is the fact that we do have all of these different options and people are watching on such different paths and um Uh, trajectories, if you will, are they pushing themselves? And and Hallie, I think this also speaks to what you just said about Disney Plus, which is successful, that they're offering perhaps paths you didn't consider. Her point is, it's almost like choosing your the news that you watch and that aligns with the politics you believe in, because suddenly you're not being exposed to or offered a diversity of views or diversity of shows that are, are out there. You know, there's 
um, groups that are typically marginalized in mainstream TV that now have a platform and have these successful series, but are people watching them if they choose not to? No, it's a good point. And I think the, the converse of that is, you know, we've talked a lot about narrative television, but I think that, you know, when you think back to the shared viewing experience of the six o'clock or the seven o'clock news in, you know, days of yore, and this idea of the Walter Cronkites of the world you know, kind of shepherding the audience through content that may be difficult, whether it's wartime or economic downturns or things like that, there's something comforting about having that consistent voice to kind of bring you through the stories and and know that at that time, every day, everybody's watching the same thing and getting that content in the same way. And you're having this um, community, even though you may be alone in your own home, you're having it through the television and, and using that as a tool. I do, um, you know, I, I think about that and I think about, you know, the, the value of services like YouTube TV in kind of, you know, creating a modern way for that to happen. Because, you know, frankly, what it is, is it's an upgrade to an antenna. I mean, you still get your basic news networks. And yes, Brian, to your point, you can still choose the network that you're most aligned with in terms of politics and all of them have a slightly different skew or bias, but it still is mainstream news. And even for their bias, I think that you get a, a greater cross-section of content than if you are, say, just reading articles online or picking up news from a social feed. You know, you're getting presented with a larger slice of the story um, because it's a one-hour newscast. They have to fill it with different things. So even if they don't cover everything that you think should be covered or they cover it in a different way, you're getting much more content than you would if you're just picking and choosing on your own on the internet. Brian, what about you? How are you consuming media these days? What services are you using? My first streaming that when I first dove into the pool, if you will, was certainly Netflix. I looked to Netflix as the pioneer, if you will. You know, they they definitely changed the way we were consuming movies when they first began and they were sending DVDs through the mail and then they moved over to the streaming service and and then and more importantly, creating the library that they had of beloved films and, and series and then developing those original series. So I definitely feel they are a model that most of these are are based off of. Um, in addition to that, I do watch Amazon Prime as well as Hulu. Hulu, not as much. It takes me a little bit of time to actually get to some of the more uh, current shows. There are a few that I'll watch, but uh, actually to your point earlier when you were asking, what are we all watching? So kind of a quite diverse, but they both, I guess, involve eating in some way so I've actually been revisiting True Blood um, which I had never seen in its original <laughs> run so two very different ways of, uh, of um, consuming content and to your point earlier what I'm finding myself it's so easy to you know we've talked about this before when you are binging to get that instant gratification I you know and it's funny watching a show like that I mean that to some degree shows today still do this but knowing that that aired at a time when it was appointment TV it was one once a week and I can see that the way that the, the I think to myself when I see the end of the show or even the end of a season, how that was such a great cliffhanger. But I'm like, but now let me watch the very next one, you know. And so it's a convenient thing. But I, I actually find myself disciplining myself and saying, you know, what, let's walk away from this for a while. Let's walk away from this for a month just to give myself a little bit of that breathing room to um, 
as you said, actually digest what's being presented to me and not just take it and take it and take it in. And it's hard because when you're into the story, you want to see what happens next. You brought up something interesting, and I'm surprised that Eric and I didn't mention this when we were talking about how we're consuming content, but you brought up Amazon Prime. And I feel like for whatever reason, Amazon Prime is the one that I feel like it's left out of the conversation. People are like, oh yeah, no, I do use Amazon Prime. And in fact, Eric and I have been using Amazon Prime a lot more than Apple because sometimes the pricing is less on Amazon Prime. I do sort of have in the back of my mind a a question about Amazon Prime as far as Amazon being such a successful company branching out into other areas. Are they um, just kind of biding their time? And are we going to see some kind of like big merger or acquisition come out of Amazon because they have the buying power to actually do that? And will they emerge as a larger player in a different way? I mean, they are creating original content. They are syndicating content and offering up for rent or buy. Um, so I, I, I'll be interested to see what happens there, but for whatever reason, you know, I feel like even in the articles I was scanning in preparation for this, this episode or just in conversations around streaming, you know, oftentimes they'll get left out of the conversation. All right, guys, anything else before we go into predictions? Just to reframe what we were also talking about with appointment viewing, uh, one of the things that being a big movie guy uh, that enjoys going to the theater, I go at least once a week, um, is the the new platform where things could be in the theater as well as streaming at the same time and i'm curious your thoughts on that because i definitely think it it's it's caused us to lose a bit of reverence even more of that process and of that uh iconic process of going to the movie theater Mm -hmm. it's always been this um uh chain of events if you will right you know there's the previews then it's in the movie theater and eventually it would release on VHS or DVD, and then it would be on cable. You know, But now, here we are, we have something in the theater, but at the same time, your friend could be watching it in their living room. So curious your thoughts on, on that approach. If you want to know my thoughts as a film major, all I can say is, Boo. <laughs> I hate it. I, I hate, do too. hate, hate, hate it. I think it's totally not only lazy, but completely disrespectful to everybody who works so hard to make that film. I just think there are certain films many films that just need to be consumed on the big screen. It's not the same when you watch them in your home. And I think that there is something so powerful about a shared viewing experience, particularly around films like the one that, Brian, you just saw a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. Absolutely. The Lighthouse. I was just sharing that with the team. And what I was, to your point, Hallie, I, when you're saying, uh, you know, there's certain films that need to be seen on the big screen, I find myself saying that more and more because now I know that there is this option of convenience where people are like, oh, I, I hear that streaming. I'll check it out. And I'm constantly like, no, you have to see this one on the big screen. That's one of the reasons I love going to the movies. You know, everybody has, you know, something in particular that they're um, drawn to. And for me, I love watching the cinematography and the the symbolism of moments. And it's like I read a review on The Lighthouse and it, it, it made it very clear you need to go to the theater to see this. I, the format, the way it's shot, the drama and the impact of, of the way that the scenes play out. I can't imagine somebody watching that on their iPad or their even you know, on their phone for the first time and feeling that same impact. It was all about the sound as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, a, you know, a, another art that's lost is the sound and the sound mixing when people are just watching it at home or on their computer with headphones on on a plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so the, as I said earlier, that reverence has been diminished to convenience. Recently, we were traveling and we were actually traveling with my parents and totally different kind of film. But 
my mom was telling me that she was watching Rocket Man on the plane. And I was thinking, because I had seen that in the in the theater, and as far as like rock biopics go, I thought it was one of the better ones that I've seen in recent years. And I was just thinking about the fact that that was such a, a fun and exciting film to see in the cinema that it was kind of a bummer to hear that she was watching it on this like teeny tiny little screen on an airplane. I just feel like it doesn't have the same impact. It's diminished. It is. And I mean, there are certain films that I'll ha- have every intention of seeing in the theater and then I don't get around to it for whatever reason. And then when I go to watch it on our screen at home, I'm like, I don't really want to watch it at home. It's not the kind of thing I want to see in my living room. So I do agree with you. There are certain films that you just really have to see on the big screen. And I, I also do uh, wonder if, you know, we're seeing some kind of a, an adjustment by the studios to produce content that's better seen in theaters. Obviously, you know, again, there's a business case for that as well. Um, certain things just shouldn't be produced for a network. And I think that that, you know, maybe on the positive side of things, that might lead to more creative filmmaking. This might be a new era of filmmaking, or at least we can hope for that. And it seems this is a whole different rabbit hole of a topic, but it just seems it's so much shooting themselves in the foot, at, if you will, if you're releasing it in a theater, but at the same time, people can watch it at home you know there that comes down to the you know the science of revenues of the of the movie theaters and how you know for a time attending movie the a movie at a movie theater was a dying art but it, it does seem to be on the rise so it, it's just funny to me that in parallel the, this new trend is happening um with that um upswing and uptick i should say in that in that that was viewing trends there's something so cool about going to a movie theater. And while you were talking about Rocket Man, which is so ironic to me, while you were talking about Rocket Man, I was like, I remember being in the theater for, I don't even remember what movie, but like a trailer for Rocket Man came on and the sound in it is so incredible. And you're in this like black box and you're just sort of transported into a world that doesn't, it doesn't have the same effect when you're at home you can't pause it yeah you can't be answering the door or the phone you're you're for two hours you're you're transported you know we've talked about this in the office the the trend out there with concerts where they are forcing you to lock your phone away where you don't have the option to you know not only check your your social media or your texts but you also aren't there to capture the the concert through a phone mm-hmm. um so I, I do think Allie to your point that's the magic of seeing a movie in a theater that you are for two hours two plus hours this is where you're engaged with yeah. nothing else and if Allie was captivated by Rocket Man, that says something because Allie is shall we say not the not the biggest Elton John fan so mm-hmm. I think and that, and that, I <laughs> quote last Monday I have to go to an Elton John concert tonight Sorry. unquote <laughs> send all hate mail too exactly girl had, girl had free tickets to go uh, see elton john last monday night and don't she, hate me quote had to go Sorry. so on to predictions the predictions are in the category of who will win the streaming wars brian your prediction my prediction is netflix as stated in my conversation earlier, I do feel they were the first pilgrims to land on said streaming rock. And the fact that they, their ability to transform from their initial model to what they're doing today to the content that they're putting out there being um, movie quality that's hitting both theaters as well as uh, homes, the talent and the quality of the programming that they're putting out there is... Um, truly a benchmark for which all of these other streaming services are are setting to reach and so i do feel that they're 
they've just demonstrated the ability to move forward and to evolve. And so uh, there's something behind that um, ability to transform the way that they have that I feel that they're going to keep moving the, the, the needle, if you will, um, and keeping ahead of uh, situations, somebody like Amazon Prime buying another and becoming bigger just by quantity. Um, I do think their quality will continue to shine through. Thank you, Brian. And now on to Eric. What is your prediction? My prediction is Netflix. What? Excellent answer. <laughs> yeah, I agree, I agree with Brian. I, they created the whole world of binging, right? They, they have a platform that's on demand and ad free. They spent a ton of money last year, $13 billion in creating new content. And what I think they're winning at compared to the other platforms is creating content for different countries in different languages. And they're slowly going to introduce that content to American viewers, for example, or people in different countries. And they're either going to dub or subtitle these videos and introduce them to new audiences. And then what they're going to do is if people like it, they're going to re-record it with new casts in those native countries. So I think they're going to have more content than anyone. They're going to they're going to win the short game, right? They might not have the quality content. I think they have some shows that are, but they're going to win in the quantity category. And they're going to build up their subscriber base more than any of the other platforms. And I think Disney should be the natural winner. I also think Apple could be it, but they're focusing on the long-term strategy of quality. Not that that's not going to work out for them in the end. I just think that in the interim, everyone's going to look to Netflix as the winner. And then the big question will be, will they flip a switch and focus on quality or will they get bought up by one of the bigger players like Apple or Disney plus so that they can combine powers areas for opportunity though, for Netflix, they really need to think about introducing the idea of appointment TV. I think that's a weakness that they have and they need to support that in some way. Also, while I do love their addiction to data, they AB test everything, whether it be their homepage, um, even the emails they send you, they're different for every user who logs onto Netflix. I do think it's a bit of content shock when you get to the homepage of Netflix and you start thinking about how do you want to sort through it, although I think it's much better than Amazon Prime. There's no doubt about it. So I think there's some opportunities for them to improve, but I, I really do think that they will win against all the other streaming services because of their strategy in creating content for the various languages around the world. So, you know, I thought about that, too, because, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I'm watching this show, this Israeli show called Shtisel. And actually, it's a perfect example of a show that got really popular on Netflix. And now they're creating an American version. And so I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And with Amazon and with Netflix going so deep into international programming, I think that this is just a trend. They're testing a lot of things to see what resonates with people, and then they're going to take those series, much like what happened with The Office, and they're going to create American versions. Or let's say there's a show that's really popular in America. Like I could totally see like a spin-off of Friends or a reboot of Friends happening, but happening in like India or China. Like you could definitely see these kinds of shows crossing cultural borders. That's going to be a huge opportunity. And it's a it's a really interesting way to use the platform, right? Because essentially what they're doing is they're using it as proving ground for new content and saying, if this is popular in a native language, even with subtitles, then I think we ha- we have something here and we can make something out of it. My prediction is... Disney Plus. 
already talked to you about the fact that I really think there's a balance to be struck between what viewers feel they want and what they actually want in terms of appointment television versus, you know, dropping an entire series at once. I also have spoken a little bit about content, and I think that, you know, that's going to be a major differentiator in terms of quality, not quantities. So, for example, Disney Plus in its first year is planning to have 500 movies and 7,500 TV episodes compared to Netflix, which is 4,000 movies currently and 47,000 TV episodes. So, yeah, if you're looking for quantity, definitely go the Netflix route. However, if you're looking for quality, my argument is that some of these other platforms can give you more of that quality. I can't tell you how many nights I find myself trying to find something to watch on TV and, you know, scrolling through our Netflix for an hour and then just saying, let's just watch the 11 o'clock news. I mean, there it just it <laughs> happens so often. And to me, you know, what that says is that there isn't enough quality there to really keep me interested. I find myself much more interested in either buying individual series, watching it on Showtime or HBO or Netflix, um, if they have something that I'm interested in watching. I mean, last year, for example, I was saying to Eric, you know, one of the best series I watched last year was The Haunting of Hill House, which was on Netflix. And I thought that was excellent storytelling. There's going to be more content like that. It, you know, they're already starting to release more kind of suspense type content because of the success of that series. There's a lot happening right now to test that. However, I think in the content area, Disney's going to win eventually because Disney owns Marvel, Disney owns Pixar, Disney owns Star Wars, Disney owns Disney. You know, they have their vault. There are so many reasons why I think Disney has the the kind of leg up there where I feel like they're going to have to continue to really push forward is where I think Netflix has already been successful, which is forming relationships with directors and producers that typically produce content for the theater and getting them to come over to their platform. I think a really good example of this with Netflix last year was the move of Ryan Murphy from Fox to Netflix to create The Politician. They're taking somebody who's very on trend, who's creating a lot of content, who can do it stylistically in an interesting way, and who has a following and who has a great kind of like troop of actors if you will he could bring all of this with him um, and sort of have a plug and play product that they can plug into Netflix he's a great model for this and I think Disney's going to have to really work their network and bring more of that content into Disney if they want to win on that that front because Netflix is already doing it successfully and I would argue that this is a page out of the Lifetime book if you take a look at you know 15-20 years ago this is what Lifetime was doing they had their like battery of directors battery of story you know tellers writers all of that and they would create these movies which you know yeah I mean you can poke fun at but they were the number one content producer for network television and they were doing it very successfully um, I remember when I was in film school I think I may have mentioned this before but everybody wanted to work for a lifetime because you had a steady paycheck and that's not you know that's not something that, um, that you can argue with so I think Disney will win if they can make that kind of model work in order to consider possibilities for success in the future you have to consider who has the purchasing power and so in the long term I think you know when you think about mergers acquisitions or buyouts I think what you're really talking about is it's going to be a Disney and an Amazon face-off and I think at the end of the day Disney Disney has more purchasing power than anybody and and so I 
personally predict that what we're going to see in the future is a dominance of Disney Plus. Um, I don't think that any of these other platforms are necessarily going to go away, but I think in the long term, you're going to see people navigating over to, you know, get the content they really want to watch. And if you've got the purchasing power, the hope is that you will use that influence for good and you will create more content that people actually want to watch. So that is my prediction. I'm going with Disney. Allie, I toss it to you for our final prediction. My prediction is Disney Plus. I know, big surprise. Yeah, big shocker. But for valid reasons, I think. I agree with everything Hallie said. I think one thing Disney does very remarkably well and is a very known thing for them is they acquire things. That's what they do. They have, in addition to um, Marvel, Pixar, ESPN, ABC. They also have 20th Century Fox and National Geographic, which are big things on Disney+. Plus. They have The Simpsons, 30 seasons of The Simpsons, and a ton of like really interesting National Geographic things. So I think in terms of who has buying power and who's watching, I think Disney Plus appeals to a, a very wide range of people. Things for, you know, little kids. They have all the Disney Junior shows. They have historical documentaries and biographies and things like that they have nostalgia for every age and I think another thing that Disney does is it builds trust and I think Disney plus has a lot of inherent trust built in in quality and in my case there's they have a whole 90s throwback section they have the Simpsons they have like for people who watched that when it premiered they have a ton of quality content that people trust and to Hallie's point about content overload, I think Netflix has content out the wazoo. They have like zillions of options, but I think, and Disney does too, but they, the difference is they have fallbacks. They have things like when you, when you're like in a, in a spiral at 3am and you don't know what to watch and you're like, eh, everything on Netflix, I don't know what it is. You can go to Disney and you're like, I know Lizzie McGuire. I know <laughs> that. I know that's good. I don't know who she is. <laughs> yeah. Who is this Lizzie? Uh, <laughs> but they do. I mean, they have that going for them. Well, no, but in all fairness, like, you know, recently I was looking for Aladdin for our kids. They had never seen the original Aladdin and you can't buy it. It's in the vault. Yeah. So the only place you can watch it is Disney Plus. Yep. And so and like it or hate it, <laughs> they do have all their they do have all their original content, which right now, Again, you know, you can love it or you can hate it. And I think a lot of people hate it. Is It's a lot of reboots. It's a lot of like live action Lady and the Tramp, um, reboots of High School Musical as Which a I've TV heard, series. Which I've heard like that in particular sounds so bizarre, the storyline. Yeah, it's really bonkers. It's, it's very meta. Like it's like somebody who was in the original High School Musical who's come back to yeah. direct it and then like they're but it's a new generation but they're all singing the old songs yeah, so that they can get you to watch the old series like it's very circular it's very weird it's really strange but at the same time it's brilliant from a Disney standpoint because what you're doing is you're getting a whole new generation of kids interested in content that's already created. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's repurposing like content. It is. The new show is almost like a trailer for the old show. It's yeah. a, it's amazingly smart. Two more <laughs> couple couple quick things about Disney Plus. Um number one I think Netflix does a good job of of marketing themselves. Uh, from a social media standpoint, I think Netflix and I think Stranger Things in particular, and that may be because that's the one 
Netflix original I like the best. Um, so I follow like Stranger Things writers on Twitter and and that kind of stuff. But I think uh, in terms of social media, they have a great presence and they interact with people in a fun way. And so it engages people more. But I think Disney does that, too. And they do it in a different way. They But they do build a lot of like excitement um, really well. Like when Disney Plus was coming out, I think they did a good job. Well, and the other thing that I don't think you can argue with is the fact that if what we're talking about in the cinema going experience is having a physical shared experience outside of whatever happens in your home with streaming nobody has a corner on that like disney there are so many real world opportunities to extend the experience the the watching experience whether you're talking about actually going to one of their theme parks or going to a disney on ice or i went to some sort of mickey mouse i don't know what it was show last year with max and my mom And I think that, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities for it to be not just a streaming service, but a lifestyle brand. And I think that that's something that you have to take into consideration as well is how far do the other platforms have the ability to take that? I mean, you could potentially argue that like Stranger Things is a good example where they filmed at that mall in Gwinnett County down in Georgia. And, you know, people were sneaking into the abandoned mall to go see the set. I mean, there's opportunities for that. Or Walking Dead is another example. You know, they have like these Walking Dead events offline and things like that. So I think once there's a cultural phenomenon built up around a show, a series, a piece of content, you've got opportunity like that. But that's a situation where you're looking to strike gold. And frankly, Disney doesn't have to worry as much about that because they already have mechanisms built in for that to happen. So I do think that's a leg up they have on everybody else. The only thing I would say against that is, yes, they win with quality and I forgot, and also quantity, but there are limitations with Disney. Some people view it as a kid's brand. There are certain shows that could be on that channel, like um, Stranger Things could easily be Disney. I think it could work. But there's no way Walking Dead would ever be on, on Disney. It just wouldn't yeah. happen. Yeah, and I think that there's, you know, right now, that's the challenge for Disney. And a lot of, you know, what I've read out in the media is confirming exactly what you're talking about, which is they have to make an existential choice about what kind of content they're willing to put on the platform. And for right now, what they're saying is that the the bar the bar has been set that every piece of content that goes on Disney Plus has to be consumable by a family. And so that puts some handcuffs on you know, what kinds of adult content would you put in there? It doesn't seem to make a way for shows like Game of Thrones or anything like that to have a place within the platform. But maybe that's a good thing. I think that there are a lot of a lot of families out there that like the idea that there's a quote unquote governor on their content and they're not going to have to worry that their kids are seeing things on the platform that they're not ready to see. And so I think even with all the parental controls, there are plenty of workarounds if the streaming service is set up in your home for your kids to see things that you may not want them to see. And so I do think that it's going to appeal to different families in different ways, and that's maybe one of the benefits of it. I will say also, I I think Disney Plus is, is going to win uh, just outright. But I do think that the most important thing that I think Disney is inherently doing by acquisitions and um, partnerships and things is I think the most important thing for any streaming service, since there's so many options, I think the most important thing is going to be these partnerships and these these partnerships and these bundling opportunities where you can, because Disney does, they have like Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and then something else. They're like Hulu. Yeah. So they do, to your point, Eric, if you have 
a family-friendly, everything you can watch with your kids on Disney+. Plus. Then you have, you know, you can have Football Monday on ESPN+. Plus, and then I- as part of the package, you could have whatever's on Hulu, which is has the potential to be more adult content, quote-unquote. So ultimately what we're saying is, you know, like in the 80s and 90s when you'd pay the cable company, instead you're going to pay Disney and you'll get the bundle. It's just the same thing. It is. Well, okay, here's here's the thing, though. You bring up a really good point because I have often had this question in my mind in the last year. What is the breaking point at which the cable companies can start to reemerge? Because I do think that we're getting to a place of, you know, you, you hear all about this. Well, you know, like in my life, I'll, I'll personalize it for a moment. We have two kids under the age of six. We've purchased all of these Disney movies on Apple. Then we started purchasing them on Amazon. Now there's Disney+. Plus. We haven't quite gotten there where we've decided to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. I have a feeling this is emerging. However, right now, it's like how many of these different platforms do you have to buy into? How many, you know, like essentially like what I wish would happen is that, and this is like in my own perfect utopia, I wish that Disney Plus would come along and say, hey, if you bought like 15 movies on Apple over the last few years, we're going to give you a credit so that we can get you over to the platform and do some sort of conquest marketing. Because right now, I just think it's so, it's becoming so like cost prohibitive. Like, why am I going to keep repurchasing the same content? Um, so who knows what's going to happen there, but it does get to the point where it gets a little ridiculous. And I do wonder if we're getting to a place of the cable companies being able to come in here with a value proposition and say, you know what? We can do this for you. We can do it more cost effectively because we're partners with Disney, with ESPN, you know, with HBO, with Showtime, whatever. And we can give you bundles that are going to be less than you going to each of these streaming services separately. Oh, and by the way, we also have movies available for streaming and they're the latest movies that are new releases coming out of the theaters. And so I do think that this is the time if I'm a Spectrum or if I'm a, you know, any of these these companies, this is the time to come out and actually, you know, come to consumers with a big marketing blast and say, we have something for you as well. So I'm really curious. When we were making our predictions, I didn't hear anybody talk about Apple. Apple, obviously, for the better part of the last two decades, has dominated the technology landscape. Why was it that nobody selected Apple? I'll be honest, um, I have not been interested in seeing anything on Apple TV. Uh, I know the only two shows that I know of that are on there that are original content are Dickinson with Haley Steinfeld and then uh, The Morning Show. Yeah, (laughs) Good News, Morning Show, yeah, Mm -hmm. with Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, I do think for me it's the same thing. It's uh, part of it. I I think it's just not opening yet another portal of of another service. Um, while I feel you know, I think as everybody does, you're already so overwhelmed as it is with the services and the options that you have. But to echo Ali, I you know though I am interested in the content for the morning show, I feel like th- th- I need more to be able to engage with beyond that. But I, I do think it's a a great example of the new currency for all of these streaming options is star power. Like that is what they're using as their money (laughs) in a sense, right? Um, It's depending on like who the actors are, who the directors are. The star power is what they are using for as their bidding chips in the, in the, in the war to get customers to follow them. And the only time they've ever been a content creator was with software. And it, you know, when they came up with iTunes, they weren't, 
creators of music either. They were just that platform that people consumed it. And that's how they've been introduced with videos as well. So I think they're trying to reinvent themselves and they haven't been successful. They've also, as we all know, you know, they've lost their CEO over the last decade and then their chief design officer. So they're just in a very different place. And I think they need to focus on what they're good at. I would say that's probably what we're looking at. I don't think that we've seen the last of Apple as a dominant giant in any of these fields, whether it be software, hardware, or now streaming. I just think that they're in a little bit of a quiet phase and they're going to reemerge stronger than ever if they can get right in terms of leadership and vision. I guess that's the, the one to watch is just to, you know, keep our eyes on what ends up happening with Apple. Maybe we'll be having a very different conversation at this time next year. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Jeff Goldblum. The reason I'm giving him My Bigger Boat this week is because The World According to Jeff Goldblum premiered on Disney+, and the show explores the, quote, extraordinary in the ordinary. And frankly, I would watch Jeff Goldblum brush his teeth. So, Jeff Goldblum, I can't wait to watch this show. I bestow My Bigger Boat to Olivia Coleman, Helena Bonham Carter, and the rest of the cast who have inherited the crown season three of the Netflix series, The Crown, to be specific. Stepping into the royal shoes of a commercially successful and critically adored series is certainly not an easy feat. Olivia Coleman has been rather candid in saying she currently has, quote, the worst job in the world right now, unquote, as she is poised to share her embodiment of Queen Elizabeth in the shadows of Claire Foy's turn in seasons one and two. Uh, Part of my bigger boat crown is also awarded to the promotion of the new season that involved the new monarch seeing her updated royal portrait from a young sovereign, which was actually a portrait of Claire Foy, to the seasoned monarch that the current season is portraying. This being the world's first glimpse of Coleman as the queen, and with a perfect wink of British dry humor, it addresses the public's uncertainty with this freshman cast. She simply states at the end of the promo as she stares at said portrait with trepidation, quote, Nothing one can do about it. One just has to get on with it. Unquote. God save Olivia. This episode, my bigger boat goes to the creator of a comic book series called The Runaways, Brian K. Vaughn. The Runaways was adapted for Hulu in 2017, and it premiered on Hulu, it streamed on Hulu, and now it's on Disney Plus as a Marvel show. It's incredible. It's about six teenagers in Los Angeles thinking that their parents are evil villains, which they are you know but it's full of twists and turns and it's so engaging and so interesting and so cool so i really like that happy to watch it on disney plus nice did you watch the umbrella academy yeah so good i love it it's so, so good that's the one that i watched on the treadmill without you it's okay you gotta it's watch a, that eric there's nothing wrong with them i'll watch it and when i'm on the treadmill <laughs> never <laughs> eating brownies <laughs> Oh, man. No, I'll be eating the brownies downstairs. Right. so funny because no. Eric signs mm-hmm. you up for marathons, and then he's like, and you train, and I will eat all your brownies. I'll just show mm-hmm. up. <laughs> Meet me at the finish line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin, the creators of the podcast series Broken Record. 
They're about halfway through their third season, but a recent episode with Jack White and Brandon Benson of the Rock and Tours reminded me how much I love this podcast. Also, I haven't listened to it yet, but the most recent episode is an interview with Adam Cohen, the son of legendary Leonard Cohen, and it's all about his legacy. So make sure you check it out. This week's episode is in support of the Walt Disney World Resort's Corporate Citizenship Program. The Walt Disney Resort's Corporate Citizenship Program, whose mission is to strengthen the Central Florida community with a focus on children through a special brand of magic. They cultivate strong relationships with community leaders and nonprofit organizations to better understand their needs, and they seek to influence outcomes and make the greatest impact through contributions of money, product, and resources. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at sharkandminnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.